0: Hebrews 2020, 20, we see Jesus increment 262, Wednesday, March 1st, and this is March 1st, and so I say today, happy 40th birthday, Jared, to my son Jared. And today we're going to consider, tonight we're going to consider, The New Covenant again, an enormously significant topic in the New Testament, and you can't say enough about it, I'm finding out, you can't say enough about it, but because God has made us competent, we can say a few things about it, perhaps, and so, Father, grant us the grace, grant me the grace to communicate grace to the hearers, to minister grace to the hearers today, to speak the truth in love so that the church, which is Christ's body, may receive edification and that we all may be strengthened with might in the inner man. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to be going to Hebrews 8, 8b through 12, also Hebrews thirteen twenty, the last mention of the new covenant in Hebrews to show you the extent of that topic in our homily. We're also going to be going to a remarkably, I call it even a sublime passage in Romans, starting at verse 25 of chapter 11. And also one more verse from the old covenant scriptures that deals specifically with a prediction of the new covenant, And that is Isaiah 59, and we'll be going there in our connection with Romans 11. So we're mixing it up a little bit in Hebrews today. Of course, we'll also be aware of the interweaving of 2 Corinthians 2 core, probably somewhere along the road here. We've communicated a few hopefully edifying and grace conveying and challenging truths about the new covenant. Like I said before, you can't say enough about it. So there's a time when we're going to have to leave that topic. I don't know when it's going to be because I don't see an end in sight. It's such a remarkable covenant, or a remarkable motif and theme of the scriptures. Jeremiah 31 31 to 34 which is the Septuagint thirty-eight, thirty-one to 34, I keep mentioning that, is the longest quotation of an Old Testament passage in the entirety of the New Testament. Hebrews 8, 8b through 12 is the citation or quotation of that in its totality. Look, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took hold of their hand and led them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not abide by my covenant, and I disregarded them, says the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will put this is the covenant that I will covenant with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws into their mind, and upon their hearts I will inscribe them. And I will be their God, and they will be my people. And none of them will teach his fellow citizen or his brother. That word fellow citizen is something we're going to have to take up in the future because it has to do with being fellow citizens of Orinopolis, the heavenly city-state. Or his brother saying, know the Lord, because all will know me from the least to the greatest. Because I will be merciful to their wickedness, and I will never again remember their sins. The new covenant is superior to the old covenant for many reasons, some of which we've already considered. The new covenant is mediated by Jesus, the son of God, who is over God's house, and not Moses, a servant in God's house. The new covenant is given eternal authorization by the blood of Jesus, the son of God, and not by the blood of animals. It is a salvific covenant that brings about justification and sanctification in the new covenant community. Justification because of the blood of the Lord Jesus, sanctification because of the spirit of the Lord, the Lord, the spirit. Is placed within us. The new covenant has to do with the justification and not the condemnation of Israel, as we learn from 2 Corinthians 3. Ours is not a ministry or an operation, an ongoing operation of condemnation, but of righteousness, which perhaps is better understood as justification. Ours is an operation of justification, an operation not of the letter written on stony tablets but of the spirit written on fleshly tables of the heart where God actually inclines our hearts to do his will and empowers us to do his will and, in fact, places his spirit in us to do and to will his good pleasure. The New Covenant has to do with the justification and not the condemnation of Israel. It is a covenant by which all of Israel will be saved. The New Covenant is a salvific covenant. I can't state that emphatically enough. It guarantees not only the salvation of all of Israel in all of its times, but also of all the nations whose coming in is associated with their salvation, with that salvation, and with the removal of ungodliness from Jacob by the rescuer who comes from Zion, that being Jesus the Lord, the great shepherd of the sheep, whom the God of peace led up from the dead, Hebrews 13, 20. The new covenant has to do with not with God taking Israel by the hand and leading them out of Egypt, but of the God of peace leading up Jesus from the realm of the dead, and with him all of humanity in all of its times, even all of creation as well. For this one Jesus Christ died for all, and all died when he died. 2 Cor 5.14. Consequently, all were led up from the dead, effectively speaking, when he, the great shepherd of the sheep, was led up from the dead. God who brought him out of the realm of the dead is called the God of peace. In Hebrews 13.20. He is the God of peace, not least, because he made peace by the blood of the cross of the son of his love. We made this clear in increment 260, but it bears repetition. In fact, it requires rep- repetition. God is called the God of peace, not least because he made peace by the blood of the cross of the son of his love. That peace is another word for universal reconciliation, as Colossians one twenty, in collusion with Ephesians one ten, makes eminently clear the god of peace who led jesus out from the realm of the dead is the god who was in christ reconciling the world to himself not imputing their sins to them this is the hamartiology of the new covenant 2 corinthians 5:19 5, So when this God of peace led Jesus up and out of the realm of the dead, he effectively raised the world with him. This is the radical alteration of the world's situation that was brought about in and by the Christ event. It's an alteration that can only be perceived by faith and only by faith that which separates the New Covenant community from the community of persons around us is that by faith we perceive this alteration of the human situation. And therefore we know no one after the flesh. And what separates us also from the community of persons around us is that we also perceive by faith something hoped for, the ultimate universal change or alteration of the universal condition through Jesus Christ. There are many things that ought to separate us and distinguish us from the general community of human persons, especially in a time of the corruption of a culture or the end of a civilization. One of those things that distinguishes us is speech, That's why Paul said, let there not ever be named among you obscenity or coarse or obscene jesting or what we would call dirty jokes or blasphemy or heresy or any rotten speech by which the spirit is grieved. Let not, not any of that be named among you, but be distinguished as set apart ones and saints in the realm of speech. That's one practical way that we can distinguish ourselves as the New Covenant community, as saints in a world and in a nation in which there is much impurity of speech. This bringing the Lord Jesus out of death in Hebrews thirteen twenty again is, on account of the blood of the everlasting covenant, en haimati diathekes eonio. That'll be in the title of our message today, next to increment two sixty two, en haimati diathekes eonio. The blood of the everlasting covenant, which is the blood of Jesus Christ, which justifies sanctifies, purifies, and saves. Not enough can be said about Hebrews 13.20. It's a verse crowded with insights and fraught with implications, all of which are intimately associated with the new covenant. You can't say enough about the new covenant, and I can't either, but because our competence is from God, and he has made us competent ministers of the new covenant, we can say some things about it that edify and minister grace to the hearers. That's all I can do, is say some things about it that edify and hopefully minister grace to the hearers. The spirit of grace is he who is connected with the blood of the covenant in Hebrews 10.29. We speak by this spirit of grace to minister grace, not to speak in ways that minister grace is to grieve the spirit because he is the spirit of grace. Ephesians 4.30, connected with Hebrews 10.29. It's in connection with the new covenant, not the old, that Israel will turn to the Lord. And in that turning, in that national conversion, the veil over their heart will be taken away. The taking away of the veil over the heart of the children of Israel is a salvific event. It's an event of eschatological salvation. For the heart of the children of Israel being turned to the Lord, epistrepho in 2 Corinthians 3.16, is the conversion that goes hand in hand with the salvation of all of Israel, in Romans 11:26, And you'd do well to turn to that passage, in fact, beginning with Romans 11:25, I brought about this translation when we were dealing with Romans, the epistle reading Romans with the light on, which is a series that's also on tetelestai.org, but we'll go there in a moment. Please notice, as we look at this passage we're going to look at Romans 11:25 through 32 and then at the doxology that follows on its heels please notice that what is at the heart of this sublime paragraph in Romans that begins with a mystery and ends with the, with what the mystery is all about which is God's saving mercy on all all gentiles and all of Israel please note what's at the heart of that paragraph. It's almost at the geographical heart and center of that paragraph in Romans eleven twenty seven, in which the new covenant is found. Romans eleven twenty five, my siblings, Paul says, I've said all of this, speaking of the whole epistle up to this point, but also specifically Romans nine one and following. I've said all this because I don't want you to be ignorant of this mystery and so that you would not be restricted to mere human common sense which is a limiting, acceptable way of thinking in your group. In other words, the group that he was addressing had some biases and some prejudices and one of the biases was a common sense bias. Common sense is wonderful up until the point where it comes up against the word of God and where it rejects the word of God based on common sense. And so I'll say it again, and this just fills in the context a little bit. My siblings, that's brothers and sisters, I've said all this because I don't want you to be ignorant of this mystery and so that you would not be restricted to mere human common sense, which is a limiting, biased way of thinking in your group. Hardness, he says, and this is part of the mystery he's talking about. Hardness, sclerosis, has come about in part of Israel. Part of Israel. Only until the totality, pleroma that is, of the Gentiles comes in. That is, until they come in to the kingdom of God. As the Israel of God with all of Israel. Including all of Israel after the flesh that we call them what Paul called them in 1 Corinthians 10, 18, who are also slated to be saved. Verse 26, and then, without further ado, all Israel will be saved. All Israel will be saved. We recently hooked up with 2 Corinthians three sixteen, when it, the heart of the sons of Israel, that's all of Israel with one heart, turns to the Lord as Moses did inevitably when he went into the tent of meeting the veil over their heart is removed, which is a picture of salvation, a picture of their salvific vision of Jesus Christ, the veil that's removed in Christ. So there's a wonderful correlation between Romans 11.26, which announces all Israel being saved, and 2 Corinthians 3.16, a passage that is extremely important, which shows the inevitability, the prophetic inevitability of the heart of Israel turning, epistrepho, a verb for conversion, to the Lord. And so look at verse 26 again. All Israel will be saved. And then he appeals to the scripture and alludes, in fact, quotes Isaiah 59:20 20, and 21. As it is written, he says, from Zion... That's the same place where the stone of tripping and the rock of offense was laid in another passage of scripture here. And then without further ado, all Israel will be saved as it is written from Zion, the rescuer will come. Redeemer is good, but the word here is actually rescuer. The rescuer will come. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. That's a code word for Israel in its totality. And that's Isaiah fifty nine twenty. And here's the new covenant in verse twenty seven, right in the heart of this sublime paragraph. Indeed, this is when I fulfill my covenant with them, that is, when I take away their sins. That's the climactic statement of Hebrews eight twelve. And that's the last sentence or the last clause of the New Covenant because I will be merciful to their wickedness. Isaiah puts it this way, I will turn away Jacob, I will turn away ungodliness or impiety from Jacob. Jeremiah says, I will be merciful to their wickedness, and I will never again remember their sins. Jeremiah 31:34 correlates splendidly and elegantly with Isaiah 59:21 where he says, this is when I fulfill my covenant with them. That is, when I take away their sins, says Yahweh. That's Isaiah 59, 21. The fulfillment of the new covenant, the everlasting covenant, the better covenant, is the taking away of the sins of Israel. But as John makes clear in 1 John 2, 1, Jesus Christ the righteous is the propitiation in verse 2, not for our sins only, that is, the sins of Israel only, but for the sins of the whole world. So the new covenant, though made with the house of Israel, has, and with the house of Judah together united, has implications for all of the human race and all the nations, salvific implications. So again, notice at the heart of this sublime paragraph which ends with the mercy of God toward all, the saving mercy toward all, right in the heart of it. And if you look at the verses as I have them in bold italic, you'll see this as almost quite literally in the heart of this paragraph, topically speaking, or even tropically speaking. Verse 27, indeed, this is when I fulfill my covenant with them, that is, when I take away their sins, says Yahweh, that's the covenant God of Israel. And that's Isaiah 59, 21, along with Jeremiah 32, 40 and Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34. These are new covenant predictions. Now, he continues to explain in verse 28 of 11, Romans 11, as for the gospel, for the time being, he means just temporally, during the temporally hardened part of Israel, the broken off branches of the olive tree, who are destined to be grafted back in again. However you want to view Israel in this time in between the two great eschatological alterations. For the time being, they are enemies for your benefit. That means enemies of the gospel for your benefit, Paul's writing to Gentiles. But as for the election, they are beloved because of the patriarchs. That means the election of Israel as a people is not precluded by their present unbelief. And we know, of course, that Jesus Christ himself is the elected one and all are elected in him. And that's something Karl Barth not only discovered but made eminently clear in his church dogmatics worth reading, even if it takes 10 years. Let me start again with verse 27. Indeed, this is when I fulfill my covenant with them. That is, when I take away their sins. Verse 28. As for the gospel, for the time being, they are enemies for your benefit. But as for the election, they are beloved because of the patriarchs. Patriarchs are those who represent Israel, even have Israel after the flesh, and include them proleptically. For the gifts and the calling of God, verse 29. And that's specifically talking about Israel. For the gifts and the calling of God on Israel are irrevocable. As you, Paul writing to Gentile Christians in verse 30, as you, Gentile Christians, or we call us ex-pagans, once disobeyed, as pagan unbelievers, that is, but now have received mercy. Once we were not a people, But now we are the people of God because once we had not received mercy, but now we have received mercy. 1 Peter 2.10, again. We saw that in increment 2.60 a couple increments ago. And so again, you Gentile Christians once disobeyed, that is, as pagan unbelievers, but now have received mercy. And that means saving mercy, as we know from Titus 3.5. So they, that's the hardened part of Israel, which we should never despise as so-called saved Gentiles or saved pagans. They, the hardened part of Israel, whom you Gentile Christians see reflected in your Jewish Christian brethren, that's an expansion from our study in Romans, also have now disobeyed. They've in other words, disbelieved or become unfaithful, not believing in their Messiah, Jesus, for now. So that the same saving mercy may be given to them as you have received saving mercy. Verse 32, and this is such a splendid Spire in the Cathedral of Biblical Insights. For God has shut up all human beings in disobedience and unbelief in order to have mercy on them all. Now, again, at the heart of this sublime passage, predicting the salvation of all all of Israel and all the nations, for that matter, that's part of the mystery. What's the mystery? Ultimately, the mystery is much bigger than what Paul's talking about here. This is only a center section of the mystery. The mystery that he's talking about in general and in toto is in Ephesians 1, 9 to 10, which is the mystery of God's will to sum up everything in the heavens and earth in Christ. And within that summing up of everything in the heavens and earth in Christ is the salvation of all of Israel and the salvation of all the nations coming into Israel and the salvation, therefore, of all humanity. Is Paul a universal salvation believer? Apparently. So God speaks in Isaiah about the new covenant. Not calling it new, but simply covenant, when I fulfill my covenant with them. Let's look a little more carefully at Isaiah 59. I want to begin with the first verse and then with the last two verses of this chapter because there's an inclusio having to do with salvation. He says, he opens up with a rhetorical question in Isaiah 59.1, is not the Lord's hand Able to save. Save. S O Z O. Save. And of course, the answer to that, of course it's not. Of course it is able to save. He takes Israel by the hand and leads them up out of Egypt, saving them. Is not the Lord's hand able to save? The rhetorical question, rhetorical question demands, yes, of course, it's able to save. But then look at this salvation motif in the inclusio, starting with verse 20, 20 and 21, the last two verses. And the rescuer, yes, it could be translated savior, but better, the Greek word for rescue. And the rescuer will come for the sake of Zion. That's how I translate it. And in the context it means we could say, and the rescuer will come for the rescue of Zion. Zion again being code word for all of Israel. Zion being the mountain in Jerusalem where the great king reigns. Zion being the mountain of the new Jerusalem also to which we have come, Hebrews 12, 22 to 24. So, And the rescuer will come for the sake of or for the rescue of or the salvation of Zion, and he will turn. Now in 2 Corinthians 3.16, it says that the heart of Israel will turn and it's the word epistrepho epistrepho that's a verb for conversion well if i refer you back to 259 increment 259 for that but epistrepho when the heart turns to the lord and when it does it's because the lord turned the heart turn to me all you ends of the earth and be saved isaiah 45:22 and as jeremiah jeremiah 31:18 says Turned me and I was turned. You turned me, Lord, so I was turned. I turned because you turned me. And so when the heart of Israel turns, and it inevitably will because the Lord will turn their heart to the Lord, then the veil will be removed, which is another way of saying all Israel will be saved. Again, please correlate in your mind 2 Corinthians 3.16 with Romans 11, 26. So let's look at this passage again. It's extraordinarily important. And the rescue will come for the rescue of Zion. And he will turn, this time apostrefo. It's a word that's usually used for apostas- an apostasy turning. But here it's turned on its head. Apostrefo This time. And God does the turning away of something from israel the rescuer will come for the sake of zion and he will turn apostrepho future active indicative of apostrefo it's an action performed by the omnipotent saving hand of god in the inevitable eschatological future he will turn impiety away From Jacob, ungodliness or impiety, asabiah is used here. And this again correlates with Jeremiah 31 when the Lord says, I will be merciful to their wickedness. Isaiah correlates with Jeremiah there. Verse 21, and this is the covenant. There we have it again. This is the covenant. He's referring to the new covenant here, not the old. This is the covenant. Dia theke. This is the covenant. Dia theke. In the Greek text. Dia theke. This is the covenant. To them from me, he says. This is the covenant to them from me, says the Lord. My spirit, this is the Lord the Spirit, that is upon you, and my words that I've put in your mouth, Isaiah, the prophet, will never fail out of your mouth or out of the mouth of your seed, your descendants, your offspring. For the Lord said it from the now, that's the now that stands, and forever. That's pretty much a literal translation from the Greek text of the Septuagint. God turning away impiety, or ungodliness, we could call it, from Jacob. God turns it away from them. Jacob can't turn away from his ungodliness God turns away ungodliness from Jacob. I found that I could not turn away from my sins, habits, addictions of the past. But God turned those habits, sins, and addictions away from me. Doesn't mean I'm perfect. Doesn't mean I don't sin. It means that that which utterly controlled me without interruption no longer controls me. God turning away impiety or ungodliness from Jacob is parallel with God's being merciful with regard to their lawless deeds in Hebrews 8.12 which is a quote of Jeremiah 31.34 Septuagint 38.34 So we could say on the flip side that God causes Israel to apostatize from their ungodliness. He makes them Enter into an apostasy from their ungodliness, their unbelief, their disobedience. Sins that are taken away, sins that are taken away, that's when I fulfill my covenant, when their sins are taken away, he says. Sins, here's a principle for you, even a thesis if you want. Sins that are taken away are sins forgiven. But not only forgiven, Forgotten by God. Look, there's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin, not only of Israel, a.k.a. Jacob, but the sin of the world, the sin that has infected the cosmos. And again, to refer to what I consider to be the premier declaration of the Hebrews homily, Hebrews 926 b But now, once and for all, at the moment of the juncture, or we could say the zenith or completion of the ages, he has appeared for the taking away of sin by the sacrifice of himself. The taking away of sin by the sacrifice of himself is the fulfillment of the new covenant. Now, consider this in the context of the whole expositional section, the central expositional section of Hebrews, which we're in the middle of now. Well, we're at the beginning of now. That expositional section is Hebrews 8.1 through 10.18. And consider how this New Covenant theme runs throughout this section. Not only this section, but the rest of the sermon or the homily, because, again, Hebrews 13.20 and 21 are the last verses in the homily, except for the addendum or the greeting and the final words in 13.22 to 25. And so that new covenant is sustained, the covenant and the blood of the everlasting covenant is sustained all the way up to 13.20. And 13.21 rhymes with Philippians 2.13 because it talks about God doing and willing in us what is according to his own purpose, which, again, is a practical fulfillment of the new covenant in the new covenant community and a prayer wish which I share with the writer for our own Tetelestai phalanx and beyond. And so the putting away of sin by the self-sacrifice of Jesus the Messiah is why According to the new covenant, God says I will never again U very strong negative. Double negative in Greek is a strengthened negative, not the negation of a negative. God says I will never again remember their sins in Hebrews eight twelve, and this is the concluding promise with which the new covenant is enacted. One of those better promises. This final declaration by God in his giving of the new covenant is carried through the rest of this lengthy and loaded section of Hebrews 8.1 to 10.18. Then in 10.19, we have the central exhortation, which will be exciting. In fact, it is repeated, this quote of Hebrews 8.12 is repeated at the end of this section in 10.17 in tandem with the conclusion that where there is forgiveness of these that is, all sins, there's no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. So the, the rationale, of course, is, so why are you tempted to go into the old Jerusalem and offer the same sacrifices which can never take away sins when one sacrifice forever has made all these redundant sacrifices actually an act of apostasy? And that's where we get into the A.D. 70 trajectory, especially in Hebrews 8.13, where it says that which is getting old and antiquated is ready to vanish altogether. It's actually a prediction of the vanishing of the temple and of the temple sacrifices in A.D. 70 under Titus of Rome and his armies. We're going to be getting to that again and reworking and retooling, as it were, that whole AD 70 trajectory that we worked through in Matthew 24 and is on org also. So, in ten seventeen and 18, the close of that expositional section, there is a reiteration of this promise, I will remember their sins no more, and... Then the conclusion where there is a forgiveness of these, that is sins, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. Hebrews 10:18. Ergo, that's Latin for therefore, all sacrifices for sins being made in the Jerusalem that is no continuing city and in the temple slated for demolition are not only unnecessary and redundant, but they are simply the result of the veil remaining over the heart of the children of Israel. Regarding the remarkable Romans 11 passage, it's really no wonder. And we'll close with this too. Paul did. We will. His, at least that chapter. It's really no wonder that Paul sails into this incomparable doxology or a an attribution of glory to God on the heels of the insight of God's universal saving mercy. Once you see this, the result is worship. When I first discovered the universally saving significance of Jesus Christ and the universally redemptive impact of the cross of Christ and saw it clearly in the scriptures, the result was worship. The result was a thanksgiving and a worship of God and a doxology I couldn't have written, but Paul wrote, and kind of put into what my heart says and what our heart says when we discover this universal saving mercy. This is what Paul sailed into in Romans 11:33. Oh, the depth of the wealth and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unfathomable are His judgments, and that includes right close to this. His judgment to imprison all in unbelief in order to have saving mercy on all because of the judgment of the cross. How unfathomable is the judgment that the judge of all would be judged for all. That's astonishing. And how incomprehensible his ways of acting one of the ways of acting, in fact, the premier way of acting. It's incomprehensible. We can't fully grasp our minds around it. When God in Christ reconciled the world to himself by means of the death of his son, that's one of his incomprehensible ways of acting in an incomprehensible, unimaginable love. Verse 34, for who has ever known the mind of the Lord who has ever become his advisor and told him what to do who has ever first given to him and has to be repaid by him I've done this Lord you better reward me with blessing in fact reward me with salvation because I've believed in your son no no way No one has ever given to him first and has to be repaid by God. Nobody advises him. And I get a little taste of this when I'm being led by the Spirit, and you too. We are all children of God and therefore led by the Spirit. If we're led by the Spirit to wait before we do something, and somebody else thinks it's really wise to come up and tell us we ought to do that now, we kind of get a kick out of it because the Lord has already led us to do something. But somebody who doesn't comprehend the ways of God, even in your life, thinks you ought to be doing something different, and you ought to be doing it sooner, or you ought to be doing it more than what you're doing, or you ought to be doing it more extremely, and with a little less graciousness and love, maybe. It's, it's kind of laughable. So how much more laughable is it when we think we can advise the Lord And tell him what to do. Oh, I ask him what to do all the time. Almost every day, I ask him to bless all the travels of, that I make and that my, the church makes. People in the church, my friends, my family, all our travels. I'm beginning to pray every day that God blesses the conversations of everyone in my family, of my friends, and in our church. I ask him to do a lot. I don't tell him to do a lot. I ask him if he'd do that, and he answers that. He loves to do what we ask. He doesn't necessarily like to do what we tell him to do as spoiled children. Well, I'm preaching. Let's go to verse 35. Who has ever first given to him to be repaid by him? Verse 36, and this is the clincher. For from him and through him and to him are all the beings of the entire universe of proportionate being in all of its times in a universal return. To him be the glory for all the ages. Amen. This is the cosmic implications. These are the cosmic implications of the Christ event. And I'll close with this short paragraph. The salvation of all of Israel occurs with the salvation of all the nations and not without. And all the nations are saved and not without Israel. The salvation of all humanity occurs with the liberation of all creation from its slavery to corruption. And one does not happen without the other. And all of this happens with everything returning to God from whom and through whom are all things at the heart of this climactic passage of scripture Romans 11:25 all the way through 36 gathering up its doxology at the end once again at its heart is the covenant the new and everlasting covenant and the promise that god will remove israel's sins which occurs with the removal or the expiation of the sins of the world. Idu, asterismos, behold, if you want, the cosmic implications of the Christ event. And Father, we thank you for this. We thank you that we see not only the personal impact of the Christ event, but its cosmic impact and implications. And may this have an impact on our lives, on our everyday conversation, on our speech, on our speech acts, in all that we do, all that we think, all that we say. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.